Hello and welcome to According to John. Today we're going to look at chapter two of the days of Noah by Martin Dahan. I hope you enjoyed chapter one or his first broadcast. This will be the second broadcast in this series. And so as we look at this, we're going to talk about the way of Cain. I am your host, John Westfall. Thank you again for joining me. Now let's jump right in. Shortly before Jesus went to die on the cross, he took his disciples aside and began to fully reveal to them the fact of his rejection by the people of Israel and his impending death. This was a bitter disappointment to these disciples who firmly believed that Jesus, their master and Messiah, was soon to declare himself king, deliverer of Israel and the Roman Empire, and set up his glorious millennial kingdom, which had been long and clearly foretold by all the prophets. No wonder they found it difficult to believe that Jesus would die instead. And we can understand Peter trying to correct the Lord and saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee, Matthew 16, 22. It is then that Jesus explains to his disciples that he will indeed set up the glorious promised kingdom, but first he must go to the cross and die and be raised from the dead to become the Savior of the world. And after that, he would deliver Israel and bring in the glorious reign of peace on earth. And so he went back to heaven, from whence he will come again one of these days. The one question in the minds of the disciples was, when will Jesus come again? They believed he would return, but when? That is what they wanted to know, and so they had asked him the plain, direct question as he sat on the Mount of Olives a few days before his death. Tell us. When shall these things be? And what shall be the sign of the coming of the end of the world? Matthew 24, 3. This question cannot be misunderstood. How can we know when you are coming? What sign will there be? To this question, Jesus answered at length in this 24th chapter of Matthew, as well as in Mark 13 and Luke 21. They had asked for a sign. Jesus gives them many signs. Some of these signs have been present in every age since then, but when all these signs shall be present at the same time, then his coming is drawing nigh, even unto the doors. In the midst of all these signs, he indicates one sign, which apart from all others will be the sign of his coming. This is the sign of the antediluvian days of Noah, Jesus says. But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered into the ark, and knew not until the flood came and took them all away, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Matthew twenty four thirty seven through 39 Jesus says, If you want to know the signs of my coming, study the days of Noah before the flood. When the conditions which existed before the flood are repeated, then know that it is clear. This leaves anyone who has a Bible without excuse. Everything we know about the days before the flood is recorded in three chapters of the Bible, Genesis 4, 5, and 6. These three chapters can be read in less than 30 minutes. It is the only authentic written account and reliable record of conditions on this earth in the days before the flood. Secular history has not one word to say about those days. If there were records of those days besides the Bible records, it might be confusing. But since we all know about the days to which Jesus refers as the days of Noah as found in the Bible, no one can plead ignorance. To understand Jesus' words concerning the sign of his return, we need only to study the three chapters dealing with the subject, Genesis 4, 5, and 6. 
These three chapters deal with the three aspects of society in those antediluvian days. The fourth chapter of Genesis gives us the economic picture of society in Noah's day. Chapter 5 is God's dispensational picture. And in chapter 6, we have the moral condition of society in Noah's day graphically described. In the fourth chapter, which records the murder of Abel, we find the first mention of 1. Religious apostasy, 2. Travel, 3. City building, 4. Polygamy, 5. Agriculture, 6. Music, 7. Metallurgy, and 8. Disrespect for authority. Bear these 8 things in mind and see how they are being repeated before our very eyes today, and all of them recorded in Genesis chapter 4. The very days to which Jesus referred when he said, But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Matthew 24, 37. The opening verses of Genesis 4 give us an account of the first modernist in history, as well as the first fundamentalist. Cain was a typical modernist, religious but unsaved. His brother Abel was a fundamentalist and was slain by his envious brother. These two boys were evidently twins in fulfillment of the multiplied conception, which was part of the curse upon the woman. God has said to Eve, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception, Genesis 3.16. Because of the shortening of the life of Adam and Eve, conception and childbearing must be accelerated. If Adam and Eve had not sinned, they would have continued to live indefinitely and been able to reproduce forever. Hence, there was no haste. But since death was imminent and the years of productivity were limited and life was uncertain, conception must be hastened and multiplied. To emphasize this result of Adam's fall and subsequent death, the next account after the fall was the birth of two boys and these first children were twins. This is strongly implied by the language of Genesis 4, 1 and 2. In these verses, we have one conception and two births. And Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain. Immediately afterward, we read, and she again bare his brother Abel. Only one conception is mentioned and two births are recorded. Although these boys were twins, their all similarity ended. For Cain became a religious modernist while Abel became a fundamentalist and a believer. Cain was not an atheist. He believed in God as much as Abel did. But while Cain believed in a God, he did not believe God. Evidently, both Cain and Abel had been instructed by their parents in the manner of salvation and an acceptable sacrifice. Where else did these two boys get the knowledge about bringing in an offering unto the Lord? This was no doubt imparted to them by their first parents, who had been so dramatically clothed with the skins of the first sacrifice, Genesis 3.21. We repeat, Cain was not an atheist, but instead was a religious modern apostate who believed he could ignore God's plain plan of salvation and substitute for it a religion of good works, ethics, culture, and human righteousness. Now remember, Jesus said, As the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Today we are witnessing a revival of the religion of Cain. There is a tremendous upsurge in religious interest, but it is a revival of the religion of Cain an ecumenical, compromising union of the various groups by sacrificing the fundamentals of the faith. There is, on the one hand, a great effort to unite the religions of the world, while on the other hand is a movement of separation among true fundamentalists. Anyone who can read the paper or listen must see these two lines of modern-day religious activity developing at breakneck speed. 
The lines are being drawn tightly between those who would unite on a platform of tolerance and human effort while denying the blood and that dwindling remnant who, like Abel, will not go along with the bloodless sacrifice of Cain and are therefore being hated and persecuted. Remember, Cain was not an atheist. He was more religious than his brother Abel up until the murder of his brother. Cain was evidently earnest, sincere, and very religious. For it was Cain, not Abel, who first suggested bringing a sacrifice unto the Lord. There is every reason to believe that the offering Cain brought was a beautiful offering. It consisted of the fruit of the ground, Genesis 4.3. It represented much toil, sweat, and labor to produce these fruits. There was a curse upon the ground, and it was only by hard work that Cain was able to produce the materials for his offering of works. Now contrast with this offering of Abel. It was a lamb, a firstling of the flock, for he had done nothing. It was the gift of God. Abel had nothing to do with the provision of his lamb. In these two offerings, we have the only two religions in the world, a religion of works and the religion of grace. Cain brought a far more beautiful offering to the natural eye, attractive fruits of the field, probably decorated with flowers and trimmings. In contrast, Abel's was a bloody, gory offering, a bleeding lamb, repulsive and unappealing. Cain's offering, beautiful and appealing as it was, could not avail and was rejected by God because he ignored the blood. His was a religion of unbelief. He did not believe the word of God in regard to God's plan of salvation. In Genesis 3.15, God had shown his plan of redemption. He had taken an animal, presumably a lamb, and had slain it, poured out its blood, and taken the skins for a covering for our first parents. Here was God's plan of salvation by blood. Cain ignored the blood and brought a bloodless offering of works. He did not believe God's word concerning the blood. He had no faith in God's word. But Abel had faith and brought his firstling of the flock, a bloody sacrifice unto the Lord. The writer of Hebrews commenting on this says, By faith Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. Hebrews 11.4 By faith. By faith. By faith in what? By faith in God's demands for an acceptable sacrifice as portrayed in the bloody skins of Genesis 3.21. Here then we have the rise of modernism and the decline of fundamentalism. Seemingly, the modernist Cain prevailed over his fundamentalist brother Abel, for he succeeded in murdering him. Now remember that all this was in the days before the flood. And Jesus said that as it was in the days before the flood, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be, Matthew 24, 38, 39. These words, we must remind you again, were spoken in answer to the question of the disciples. Tell us, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? Matthew 24, 3. To this question, Jesus says, Study the record of the days before the flood and you will find the answer. When those conditions existing before the flood are repeated, then know that my coming is near. The story of the conflict between Cain and Abel is therefore a sign of Jesus' coming. When the situation described in Genesis 4 between these two brothers is repeated, then Jesus says, Look up, lift up your heads, for your redemption draweth nigh. Luke 21, 28. Who can deny that the outstanding religious development of today is the conflict between the liberals and the true evangelicals, between the integration of the modernist and the separated position of the fundamentalist? The line of demarcation is becoming more definite. 
we must take our stand with one or the other. Either we will follow the way of Cain, the popular way, by compromising the fundamentals of the faith and join the parade of ecumenism toward the great world church, or we take our stand with Abel in a minority group, despised and opposed on every hand. The gap between the two has widened until it is becoming impossible to ride the fence, and we must take a stand either with the religious descendants of Cain or the spiritual generation of Abel. Just as the wickedness of the pre-flood days brought on the judgment of God, so it will be repeated just before the coming again of Jesus. For he said, In the days that were before the flood, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Matthew 24, 38 and 39. The signs of the times to which Jesus referred are unmistakable. In our coming messages, we shall point out many other modern-day movements which are a repetition of the days referred to by Jesus as before the flood. But we feel the sign of Cain and Abel is one of the most significant, and so we deal with it in detail. The rise of a liberal theology, which under the guise of tolerance says that faith in the virgin birth, the deity of Christ, the substitutionary atonement by blood, the bodily resurrection of Jesus and his literal coming again are not essential, and that the Bible is not verbally inspired in the record of the first chapters of Genesis, including the story of Cain and Abel, are not to be taken literally, but are only an allegory. This rise of modern theology, I say, is one of the four most significant signs of the coming of Christ. The apparent victory of the modernism in the way of Cain and the apparent decline in the number of true-to-the-core fundamentalists is a repeat of the story of Cain and Abel. Jude tells us that in the last days the religion of Cain will be revived. He says that they have gone in the way of Cain, Jude 11. The way of Cain is a way of a popular religion of tolerance and integration, the way of the natural man who believes in God and religion but rejects the necessity of the blood. Yes, Jesus Christ is coming again, and the separation of the tares of Cain and the wheat of Abel will soon take place. And so this becomes a personal matter of tremendous importance. As in the days before the flood, there are only two ways, the way of Cain and the way of Abel, man's way by religion, God's way by faith, man's way of works, God's way of grace, a sacrifice of the fruit of man's labor or the sacrifice of God's lamb. Which way will you take, the way of death or the way of life? Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that hears my word and believes on them that sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life, John 5, 24. Well, I hope that you enjoyed In the Way of Cain some eye-opening things that maybe you knew or maybe you didn't know. I hope it was a blessing to you, and I hope that it has helped you. And if it has, please like, share, subscribe, and follow. And until next week... I pray that God richly blesses you.